You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a music tech PR firm. I'm in New York City today. Just went to the New York Music Tech Meetup which took place a couple of weeks before this podcast is reaching you. And I have the honor of being in the Amper offices here with a CEO and co-founder, Drew Silverstein. 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 (laughs) How are you doing, Drew? I'm doing well. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me over. (laughs) Of course. Happy to see you. (laughs) So I'm going to start big picture and then we'll go into what you're working on um, here, uh, our listeners know we've talked about artificial intelligence and uh, music creation quite a bit, and uh, I guess we're just interested. So, so we yeah. keep coming back to it. And since I was here in New York, and you guys are doing so well, I thought it would be fun to chat. So let's start big picture. Why do you think AI music creation is so big today? I think there's a couple things. Um, and as you know, uh, and probably as your listeners know, AI music, or I would say computer. Uh, generated music has been around since the 50s, really since as long as computers have been uh, in vogue. Um, algorithmic music has been around since at least the days of Bach in the 1700s. AI music as we think of it today uh, has become popularized uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, in the past five or six years, we finally have the computing power uh, that makes it possible to deliver on what the promise of AI music can be. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit in terms of the um, sometimes the, the disparity between people's expectations when they think AI music and what the reality sometimes is. Uh, but compute power is a big thing. Um, and secondly, uh, what I think is, is potentially more uh, important is that there's a demand for it now. Right? With, with the explosion in content generation, be it video or audio or podcast or gaming or, or, or whatever uh, type of content is being made, there is a, uh, an equally exponential growth in the demand for music, and, and oftentimes the demand for uh, unique music that uh, is clear of rights and uh, financial licensing issues, and that's where something like AI Music or Amper really solves a core market need. So you've got supply and you've got demand. Right. So that's, that's a great overview. I'm curious if you could describe the timeline and major benchmarks of AI music as it's coming to market up to 2020. We don't have to go all the way back to Bach or whatever, but um, but just like what were the moments in you know just biggest moments in the last I don't know five years that kind of mark where this has been and, and where it's going now. Well, the short story is Amper was founded in 2014, and now it's 2020, and Amper's still here, and those are the moments that we care about. <laughs> um, I think I think a better way to look at it is to think of AI music rather than a um, a unique uh, branch in kind of the technological world, uh, rather as an extension of music technology. And for that, again, we go back to the uh, 1700s, right? When to make music and to perform it, right? You not only had to have all of the knowledge in terms of composition, orchestration, uh, full music literacy, so to speak, but you had to have a church or a state sponsor or, or, or a wealthy patron in order to afford to be able to do it. There's no such thing as recorded music, right? And so you had all of these hurdles, both in terms of access and knowledge 
and in cost. And what we've seen over the hundreds of years is that um, as the technology has advanced, there's been a dramatic decrease in the cost and in the time that needs to be invested to make music. So if we jump ahead to, you know, to the 1800s, all of a sudden you start seeing pianos and other acoustic instruments be able to be affordable and in people's houses. And so all of a sudden there's a little bit more access. Jump ahead to uh, the 1900s, even the, the first half of the century, right? You've got recorded music, which was such a thing. Then if we leap ahead uh, you know, a little bit more, you get synthesizers. Eventually you get uh, digital music and DAWs and then mobile and now AI and the... Uh, the key trend there is the cost and the time and the knowledge that's required to express yourself through music continually decreases. And AI music um, is the next and, I argue, the most dramatic and important revolution in this you know, centuries-long progression because it makes the time, cost, and knowledge requirements so minimal so that anyone around the world can express themselves through music. Uh, but to your specific question about the AI music timeline, algorithmic music, computer music has been a topic in academia for decades. And in fact, that's where most of the progress uh, had been made from the 50s up through uh, probably the middle part of this past decade, you know, 2014, 2015. And when we found at Amper, there were uh, one or two other competitors in the space, but it was you know, largely a nascent commercial space. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, there's no good, clean, publicly available data set for AI music. It just doesn't exist. You can't just go and pull down from some uh, website like all the data you need to power an AI music algorithm. It's not possible. And so with a lack of data, no matter what your algorithms end up being, you can't power them, you can't power them. Um, and secondly, what we've seen is historically a lot of the um, work done in algorithm music has been done by individuals focused very much on algorithmic music and AI music as a data science problem. Um, we at Amper fundamentally disagreed with that approach. We said this is not a data science problem, it's a creativity problem. And the reason for that is oftentimes in data science, right, we're trying to find the right answer uh, with a, a set of broad, broad data. And so you could say, in other words, we're looking for the, the objectively correct outcome. Right? And that's what a lot of data science is optimized for. The uh, challenge in music is that there is no right answer, uh, much like anything else creative. And in fact, it's very subjective. And so if that's the case, then we can't think of this as, a, as an optimization problem or as an objective uh, a problem with an objective outcome. Uh, we've got to think of it as a problem space with subjective outcomes. And because of that, it becomes a creativity problem. And so we approached it fundamentally very differently. We spent the past five or six years building up our data, which we've built all internally, um, building up our audio sample library, which now is the largest audio sample library in the world. I'm sure your users know what that is. And at this point, and really I would say probably 12 months ago, is when, and I'll speak from Amper's perspective, because you know I, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths or stand in for them, but when Amper truly became a commercially viable, and not only viable, but very successful uh, product and solution because of the quality of the music becoming indistinguishable from human-created music, the speed at which we create music uh, becoming incredibly quick. We can create music 
anywhere between six and 10x real time. So a minute of music in you know, a couple seconds. And because of the control that's offered, you know, you with Amper, you can control the music down to the note or you can control the music with a single button click and anywhere in between and for different levels of experience and different musical knowledge sets or different uh, use cases, uh, you've got different demands and different, um, you've got to fit what we offer and what you expose to a, a user uh, with what they're capable of and what they want to interact with. And so with quality, speed and control, becoming, you know, exceeding whatever the thresholds may have been, that then unlocks all the commercial opportunities. Because if you can't do all three of those things incredibly well, you've got an interesting experiment, you've got an interesting research project, you've got an interesting toy, but uh, you don't have a commercial solution. And that, I think, has been the biggest difference in the past five years is we've moved from research project to really core solution for many, many businesses, be they small production companies or Fortune 500 uh, corporations who are looking to uh, solve either bottleneck uh, of their creation process, rights issues, cost issues, uh, and kind of uh, scaling issues around kind of this technology. Wow, that was a great, great response because you answered about three more of my questions that, there we go. <laughs> that I had. So um, one thing that we have talked about at the Music Tectonics Conference and on the podcast and something that's come up a bit in the press, although it seems to be the dynamic is shifting, is it's a little bit controversial in a sense. Um, just the idea that AI is now going to make music. We're, we're kind of used to humans making music. I get the timeline of actually there's been tools that have emerged every step of the way or every phase, every era. There's been tools that's increase the opportunity of creativity and composition to people who didn't have it before, possibly because of first, not having the funding to have a whole orchestra or second, um, not having access to certain musical instruments and tools and so forth. But what do you think are the most controversial issues of AI music? And, and that's probably not the only one. And how do you address them? So there's a couple. The first controversial issue that I think comes up in nearly every conversation is the notion that AI music is going to destroy, you know, the livelihood of composers and artists and musicians. Uh, it's an understandable fear, you know, but I think it's largely misplaced. And to explain that, we'll lay some kind of foundation, which is to say we think of media music as broken into two buckets, artistic music and functional music. Artistic music we define as music that is valued for the collaboration and creativity that goes into making it. Functional music is music that's valued for its use case and much less so for the creative process. You can think of artistic music as a songwriter, you know, Taylor Swift writing her, her next love ballad, or John Williams collaborating with Spielberg on the next Star Wars score. And you can think of functional music um, as music that goes, that goes in the background of a social media video, right? Things that uh, are less... Uh, where, where both the creator and listener of that content care less about the process behind the music. And artistic music will never be replaced by AI because as humans, we value creativity and artistry uh, because that's a part of who we are. There's a reason that even when any other art form uh, no longer has the uh, financial motivation so, uh, per se, to to continue that art form, we still do it, right? You think, uh, and, and it's because we value the artist, the artistry, and the creativity. 
Now, uh, I do think and I do expect that those who create artistic music will continue to grow their adoption of AI music tools in their process, right? We use technology day to day. Even if you say, well, I, I write on my acoustic guitar and I don't use any other technology. Well, a guitar is a piece of technology. It's an old technology, but it is. Or if you use a, a DAW or um, any, any um, VST or whatever, you're using technology and um, oftentimes that technology's purpose is to help you take your idea and turn it into reality quickly, easily, and efficiently. And so AI music will become a core uh, tool for that purpose. On the other hand, for functional music, you've got loads and loads of content creators who have creative ideas uh, and oftentimes lack the ability to turn that into music. And in those situations, what we see is AI music technology and Amper enabling those individuals to turn their idea into reality, to join the musically creative class. And so, uh, you know, very, very bluntly, functional music will soon become the realm of AI music because of the value proposition uh, from the creators and the buyers of it, right? When, when it's not valued for the human creativity and artistry, then something that is uh, more scalable, more economical, more targeted, less uh, encumbered by licensing issues um, will win the day, market dynamics. And so what I would say is if someone creates music that's valued for the artistry, you've got nothing to worry about. Um, your career will be as prosperous, if not more prosperous than ever. If someone creates functional music, you're going to need to move upstream, up market, uh, to refine the value that you offer into the artistic space. And this is the case in any, uh, any industry that when technology advances, the, we'll call it the lowest tier of that industry becomes the realm of technology and uh, humans have to continue to innovate to, um, to continue to add value to the process. Now, what often happens is people say, um, you know, people's fear around this is often driven around uh, opaqueness, right? When, when, when we don't understand what the future holds for us, we are afraid of it. It's a very natural uh, human instinct, if not the most natural, right? Thousands of years ago, we didn't go into the cave at night because we didn't want to get eaten by a bear, right? Or Because it, it was dark. Because of that, I think a lot of the uh, fear is not necessarily born out of uh, a logical analysis based on a set of facts, but based on a biological and reaction bred by our evolution to, to a set of opaque situations. And so a large part of what we try to do at Amper is, is not convince people that we're right because we'll never, we'll never convince everyone. I think we're right. But uh, you know, if everyone agreed with me, the world would be very boring. What we try to do is remove the opacity and, and replace it with transparency so that we can share a common set of facts around what AI music can do, what it can't do, what it's capable of now, what it might be capable of in the future. And if we're able to share the same set of facts, then we can have uh, an intellectual debate or an intellectual argument, so to speak, on the merits or the demerits of, of what we're doing. And again, I, our goal is hopefully that you, know, you will agree with us, but if you don't, and if you don't agree with us based on the same core set of facts that we can agree on, that's okay. That's what makes the world interesting.
So I, I would I would push back and say I don't agree with you, and I'll tell you what I think, and uh, it's not necessarily bad for Amper. It's just a different perspective. Go for it. I think some people who do make a living or generate some livelihood from creating, composing, making music will be threatened by AI over time. I think you're right. They will have to level up to some extent or provide something that differentiates even more from what machines can do. But uh, I also, and I also agree, I agree that it's a tool that some creators will use in interesting ways and the combination of humans with AI together will create creative things that never could have existed before. They might be producing more work than ever before and still adding a human creative element. I think over time, it's going to feel more like photography. The way that photography was, uh, there was a huge technical barrier to printing pictures and composing pictures for that matter, knowing a lot about your camera. Now your camera knows pretty much everything it needs to know and you can use a WYSIWYG pinch and stretch screen to get everything you need with a couple of editing functions and things like that. To me, that's created more creativity in photography than ever could have been imagined before that. And so if you're looking at a creativity scale and access to creation, Amper or any AI music generation will win the way that smartphone cameras are winning for getting more people, making better pictures, getting more creative, just creating any kind of quote content as a result. I do think people will be threatened by it, but I also think that's okay because we, you know, there's always things that are evolving in society around technology. And what I would be arguing is that you're creating more access to creativity, which you started off with. Um, but I do think over time there will be a challenge for people who made a certain type of music. Um, the, the flooding of music is a whole thing that's already happening, even just with the digital audio workstations and bedroom studios and all that kind of stuff. 40,000 tracks are getting delivered to Spotify every day. Is it that they're saying once people, more and more people can do this, it will, it will double, triple, quadruple and so forth. So there's going to be a competition of that, but who says just because you play an acoustic guitar that you're a more important or better or more creative artist than somebody who uses AI? That's where I think the argument comes in. Sure. But to, uh, push forward on your kind of photography example, there's a reason why, and I agree, you know, because we have more access, again, we're lowering the cost and the barriers to entry for anyone to express themselves creatively, uh, which is what technology does and what Amper does. But in photography, there's a reason why at your wedding, you're still going to want to hire a wedding photographer and not have your friend shoot it on an iPhone if possible. And that's because what you value is not just the product, but you value the artistry that's going to go into making this thing. The, the right lighting, the knowledge of how to shoot the right angles, the cutting of the thing, all of those things that, that go into um, a, an artistically valued process. And again, it's, it's the tip of the pyramid to be, to be sure. So it, there is much less volume on that than there is on the, on the base, on the iPhone, you know, camera democratization side. Uh, so uh, in some ways, I agree with you and I disagree with you. Uh, I agree that the access will increase, uh, but uh, I think as long as individuals can continue to define and refine their artistic value in what they're creating in music, They'll be fine, and and to be frank, if they can't, they're gonna you know they're gonna be in trouble. What I often say to artists and musicians and composers who I speak with is, I'll say your job will not exist in five years, and then I follow with 
was saying your career will because your career is defined as your ability to help others accomplish their goals. And your job is your ability to complete a set of tasks. And the way we complete sets of tasks in music will continue to change as it always has. The way we make music now is different than it was 20 years ago, which is different than 20 years before that. And so the way we make music in 20 years will be very different than today. But the need and the ability and our demand for helping others achieve their goals through music, our, the basis for our career, will continue to exist. It just will look different. So controversial issue number two. <laughs> I've never talked about controversial issues related to Amper, ever. <laughs> uh, who owns this stuff? You know, you go onto a website or an app, you push a couple buttons, the algorithm's doing all the work, the programmers have worked tens if not hundreds of thousands of hours putting in the time to, to make this, make some kind of music. I was going to say great music, but... <laughs> How about the award-winning, capable music? Yeah, there you go. Or just what we would call functional music. <laughs> um, but who owns it? And who should own it? So those are very, two very different questions. The, the, the short of it is on who owns the music. At the end of the day, Amper owns the music we create. And the way that works is... Uh, Wait, you said we create. So what if I press the buttons, though? Is that you creating it? It's all of me? us creating. Okay. It's us providing the talent. It's, it's like saying the United States government as we. It's like, who is that? It's all of us. Um, but the, the mechanism by which that happens is um, we, uh, in consistency with uh, U.S. Uh, copyright uh, law, um, believe that when a user makes any uh, creative decision to create uh, to, as an input, to this tool, they are making creative choices uh, in the uh, process of making a new work that has merit. And at that instant of creation, they have made a copyright because they as a person have done something. It's been done by a person, right? We, you know, the monkey selfie copyright issue, you know, made it very clear that as of now, a person needs to be the one to, to click the button or, or, or click the uh, shutter, so to speak. However, uh, in the terms of our EULA and user license agreement, um, you are assigning all of those rights and anything else that could be connected to Amper. And so you've created a copyright, you assign it to us, and then we will license it back to you uh, under the terms of service that we provide. So in that way, we are assured that a copyright has been created and that all the rights related to, whether we're talking about you know, writers, publishers, uh, share of income and ownership, um, master recording, all those things are, are created, uh, are transferred to Amper, and then are licensed back to a user. And in the cases where a content creator is you know, using the music wholesale behind a piece of content, it's a non-issue because they need to be able to use the music, they need to be unencumbered by licensing restrictions, and they're good to go. Uh, in the cases where someone wants to use Amper's music artistically as a component of a song or an album they're creating, um, then we need to have a direct conversation with them to understand what role Amper's playing and how much uh, Amper is contributing to this work. Is it doing 99% of the work or 1% of the work? Uh, or somewhere in between. And based on that, we're able to figure out um, an equitable, and honestly, I typically say more than fair, division of rights. Because our goal is to enable and support musicians and non-musicians alike and not to be a roadblock in the way. 
So if I literally made some music on Amper and I wanted to release it through a distributor onto Spotify and other streaming services, I have to have a conversation, like an actual like phone call or email conversation with a human to discuss the splits? Correct. Oh. Is that, cl- is that clear to users on the, on the website? It is. Yeah. It, you know, we're very clear that um, Amper Score, which is the main publicly available platform that we, that we go to market with, is, is designed for content creators for a very specific use case. It, it's, it's not... As in video makers who want... Or podcast soundtracks. creators or any other uh, individuals who... H- how does that deal work? So if I wanted to put a song on this podcast, mm-hmm. I went to Amper score yep. and made some theme music or some interlude, interstitial yep. music, something like that. What do I do next? Yep. So um, assuming you're a customer, um, you download the music either as a stereo copy, you can get full splits, full stems, and uh, you receive a global uh, perpetual and royalty-free license to use that music however you'd like uh, in sync with content. And so whether that content happens to be a podcast or a video, or a slideshow, or a game stream, not important to us. Once you've published content with Amper's music, no matter what your status is as an Amper customer, that content you've published retains the rights related to the music perpetually. So you never have to worry about kind of um, expiration of rights, or territory issues, uh, or distribution medium. Um, if one day you are unfortunately no, long, no longer a customer, you can't newly publish works with with Amper Music, as would make sense, but anything you previously published retains its license. And if uh, Spotify started monetizing podcasts the same way they do with music, would we have to renegotiate the splits or anything like that? No. the uh, as Because now, it's with a podcast, it just has a different type of uh, license than if it was a standalone piece correct. of Correct. It's the okay. same as if you, uh, you know, had music in a video and all of a sudden you got... Uh, you know, on YouTube, say example, you know, the ad payment for putting ads on your YouTube video, Amper's not, Amper has no claim to that. We're not going to make a claim. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of legal conversations happen over time with AI created music. Um, but obviously you're, I mean, if you're, if your terms state it, there's not a whole lot of argument, is there? Well, look, lawyers love to argue. There's plenty of argument. The, the, the number of legal conferences we've been at that talk about AI music and content uh, and copyright are numerous. Now, and to be clear, you know, I think my personal opinion is a little bit more aggressive than our business perspective because what's very important for, for us is to make sure that in all areas we are on very solid legal footing, um, be it... Uh, creation of copyright, ownership of music, uh, how the mechanics of our licensing work, uh, and in, even, even in the ability for us to indemnify users against copyright infringement because of how the music is actually created as it relates to access and intent. That being said, uh, I do think the law lags behind technology, especially now. And you know, kudos to the USPTO. Uh, U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office for their recent initiative to solicit public feedback and to have an actual conversation around uh, updating their their law and their guidance and their perspective on this, because we are inter- we are entering a new era, uh, a new world of content creation, and it will be important for uh, technology and the law to become more in sync uh, and more clearly defined proactively as opposed to uh, you know working backwards 
based on what the precedent was before computer-created music was really a concern. Yeah. So there's something you said early in the interview that I want to go back to as we talk about how Amper differentiates from other folks in the marketplace, which is the sample library. And you're recording actual instruments and creating samples. That sounds unique from others. Is that true? Highly. Yeah, so we record every note of every instrument um, any possible way you could ever play it. I think at this point we've got over 8,000 or 9,000 uniquely sampled instruments. And my co-founders, Sam Estes and Michael Hobie, um, lead that uh, initiative based out of our L.A. studio. That must be a blast. Well, it's... um, it's a you know it's a scientific and artistic endeavor uh, that requires incredible skill, incredible patience, incredible ear, um, and uh, and truly there are a handful of people in the world who are great at it, and and Sam and Michael are two of those, and you know they 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 uh, earned their stripe so to speak at Remote Control, working with uh, Hans Zimmer on everything from the Dark Knight trilogy through Inception. And, you know, one of the things we realized early on when we were um, planning out what would become Amper was that, you know, it's not good enough to compose music and have it sound bad. Because, again, from a commercial perspective, that's not, that doesn't solve anybody's need. It, it can be cool and it can be an interesting project, but it's not a commercial solution. The music has to be excellent. It has to be indistinguishable from being created music. The challenge in doing that with commercially available sample libraries is twofold. One, you know, rights and licenses aside, one, these you know uh, instruments and kind of sample libraries designed for humans are designed for humans, and they are inconsistent, certainly, between not, not only between sample library companies, but even within a company, instrument to instrument. You know, they are, the layouts are different, the definitions are different the the back end looks very very different the sample names are different and so as a source of data it's a very very sloppy messy data set and that's okay because it doesn't need to be a data set number two is they're intentioned for human use and manipulation and so because of that you are allowed to offload a lot of the aspects of making the music sound good and fine-tuned to the person that's why you know midi programming and cc program is, is such a an important valuable skill when you turn that over to a computer you one need to have uh, the computer recognize an audio sample library as a data set because if it can't then you can't get the advantages of data so we de- built amper's sample library as a data set so to speak it's consistent it's well defined uh, and two it's incredibly deeply sampled, uh, more so than any commercially available sample library. And we go so far down the rabbit hole because we've got to rely on the computer and on the algorithms to make the music sound good. There's no, uh, we can't rely on a human to go in and tweak things to make it sound good. And so we started this process, you know, six years ago and have continued to invest millions and millions of dollars into it. Um, And because of that, um, not only do we own the audio sample library that we create, um, you know, and to be clear, you know, we're bringing the world's top musicians around, you know, going around the world to to do these uh, sample library sessions. Um, the music is incredibly high quality, and when when those two things are combined, it gives us an incredible competitive advantage, separate from the IP around kind of what we're doing, um, because, you know, we are so confident 
in our ability to make impeccably uh, sounding music. Awesome. Let's let's talk about any uh, kind of exciting use cases of either Amper's score or the API, because that's yes. a whole other thing as yes. well. But I mean, if you could just give us a couple of examples of things that specific anecdotes or use cases where where our audience can can say, oh, that's where this is going. Sure. So on the score side, again, um, it's more straightforward, right? It's designed for less musical content creators who are making content and otherwise might use licensed music. And the idea is we're going to let you, from the time you come to Amper to the time you leave, you're going to be able to create and walk away with the perfect piece of music for every single piece of content in a matter of seconds, if not minutes. And what's important is everything's editable, right? So you, uh, once the music is made, you can say, well, this is great, but I want to accent a different moment, or I want to reharmonize what's going on, or you know, adjust the tempo, or respot the scene, or adjust the instrumentation. All of these things uh, transpose it to a different key that you might want to get feedback on, as if you're a producer in a studio. Uh, so that's one use case uh, which SCORE is designed for. The API is exciting because while SCORE exposes you know, 10, 15% of what Amper is capable of doing, the API exposes almost all of it. And we integrate our API into content creation tools and content distribution platforms where our partners and our customers' clients are often the ones who benefit. And what's amazing is that via the power of our API, we can create millions and millions of pieces of music um, at a nearly uh, minimal marginal cost and can unlock so many business opportunities for customers and partners that otherwise wouldn't make sense. And it can be everything from a recent partnership that we launched with MasterCard uh, around the Grammys, in which case uh, they built a, uh, a user experience uh, on top of our API designed to allow anyone to create their own Sonic brand. And it was a physical activation as well as a digital one. And by inputting a few different variables, describing how you're feeling this day and what you want to do and your interests, you know, you would very quickly get your own Sonic brand and could you know, share that and post it and do what you want. And how are people, I mean, were they just like, hey, here's my new audio logo and post it to Instagram? Or? In essence, yes. Or, pu- or put it with some piece of content they're creating. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like your family coat of arms, but it happens to be audio and Sonic. Um, but you know, we also work and speak with different platforms around saying, how do we enable you know, all of these hundreds of millions of content creators to be able to score the music they're creating? from anything from totally autonomously to you know providing certain number of controls to do that um, fully in the cloud and, and to do it natively within your own platform. And that's possible because of the API. Uh, the last thing is, you know, when we think of you know personalization around content, um, so much of what we see now is, is a drive to personalize the content that reaches you and that reaches me and to make it applicable to our different tastes and preferences. Um, We argue and tend to be agreed with by our partners that if I'm listening to, or if I'm watching a video or perhaps, uh, and it's got music that I like, it's going to be more effective than it has if it has music that I don't like and vice versa for somebody else. Um, But at the same time, you can't make 100,000 versions of a piece of video content because that's not practical. Um, you, You can't have someone go and, you know, render and find and cut. But, if you can do that autonomously and at scale, all of a sudden, any piece of content can be personalized uh, from an audio Choose your own sonic adventure. Yeah, almost. As a listener, as a watcher. Yeah, not even choose your own, but have your own created select for you, 
right? Be, by the time so that you don't read even, your mind and play the right soundtrack. Kind of, yeah. And if you're able to do that and you're able to improve core business metrics or KPIs, then Amper is not only um, an interesting tool, but it's a driver of business success. And that's really important because when we can tie the API and the capabilities to increased uh, metrics and increased revenue, as well as decreased cost, that moves the needle. You know, score is oftentimes tied to optimization of the content creation experience in terms of cutting down time, as well as licensing issues. And the API is often geared towards scaling and personalization. Awesome. Well, this is this is fun to hear about where this can really go and, and hear from, from, from the beginning, from the origins in the 1800s through to where this is going, where social media apps have personal, not just personalized customization of your soundtrack, but for the listener, for the viewer, you know, 100,000 users might all get different soundtracks to a piece of content. It's pretty, pretty great to, to, to imagine, crazy to think about. So I'm going to broaden out just a little bit since we've got you. What are some other music tech trends that you're keeping an eye on that may or may, you know, not necessarily, I mean, we've talked, we've gotten a deep dive on the AI music creation side of things. What are some other music tech trends since you're in the space that are, are intriguing you right now? I think one of the most interesting ones is, is one that has been in vogue for much longer than AI music, which is music rights and the ability to track and successfully distribute the monetization uh, around music rights. Uh, and oftentimes it's a, it's, a, it's a data problem, you know, and, and this is an issue where there is an objectively correct answer, right? There are a certain number of people who have the rights. There are a certain number of times this was played and a certain number of ways it was played. And there is an objectively correct way that, this mu- that the rights uh, say the music and the revenue should be split, right? Now, oftentimes we don't know what that is, right? Which is a data problem, not a uh, not a uh, question of is it right or wrong? Do I agree with it? Um, there is a there is a right answer, uh, but tracking it, getting the right information in, and making that work at scale, especially in our internet fueled era that doesn't you know rely on radio or, or things where there is oftentimes much more accurately defined records so i think that space is is intriguing there hasn't yet been like a dominant player but there are certainly some i was going to ask you are there companies that you've been intrigued with in that space yeah well i think you know uh stem is certainly one that's interesting you know our uh there are a lot of global rights companies that are popping up to compete with the PROs oftentimes, which you know are very successful at what they do, but are oftentimes legacy businesses and which potentially have you know competitive weaknesses uh, with regard to the internet era. And you know I think beyond that, there's a lot of conversation around the value of blockchain uh, you know with rights. And whether or not that ends up being useful will be seen. I think you know there's a bit of a hype cycle and we're on the tail end of it, and now we'll start seeing the real practical value. Needless to say, with the continuing increase in content, the challenge of accurately identifying and making sure, th- identifying the rights and making sure that the revenue f- flows accurately to those rights holders is only going to grow. Hmm. Any other trends before we, I'm going to ask you where you're going to be, where people can find you, but uh, any other music tech trends that are, are things that you think about? Broadly, it's, they're related to the same problem that Amper solves, right? which is access and ability to express yourself creatively through music. There are so many cool new actual instruments or hybrid, you know, acoustic, digital, digital technology. What, what was the instrument that popped into your head when you said that? Which, what were you picturing? 
Well, you know, one of our fellow portfolio companies, um, we, we are fortunate to be a portfolio company with investors from Foundry Group. And one of our portfolio peers is Rolly, uh, Roland Lamb's company. And it's a great example of a truly new approach to a traditional instrument space. And they're just one. Uh, but, you know, there's no reason that we can't continue to innovate in mediums of expression. Last night at this New York Music Tech meetup where I was, uh, a guy named Brett Porter from Art and Logic has been heavily involved with the release of MIDI 2.0, and he demoed oh, sure. Rolly, but also talked about all the type, the category that you're talking about is possibly going to now explode even further because of the op- the interoperability that results from this new protocol. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons when we built Amper that we couldn't use MIDI internally was it was limited. It, uh, you know, it can, can it, it does a very good job of conveying you know note value duration and you know things but very poor job of conveying how things should sound and uh, a lot of the kind of performance related details within and so we've developed you know we had to develop our own internal protocol which is incredibly advanced you know if midi 2.0 existed six years ago perhaps it would have been sufficient but needless to say being able to advance something from a 1983 spec to uh, you know, 2020 spec is only gonna make technological innovation and in music more successful. Yeah, cool. So real quick, are there any upcoming events that you're attending uh, where people can connect with you? I know there's a lot of travel concerns right now, um, or are there conferences that you go to on a regular basis, maybe later in the year, Any anything at all? I know I saw you at Emerge Festival in Las Vegas a couple yep. of years ago, which um, uh, you know I think is actually going to happen again. And, um, I probably shouldn't say too much cause they're a client of ours. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anything, anything else that you go to regularly or that people can find you or if not, then where should they find you online? Yeah. Well, certainly you can find us at ampermusic.com. We've got the social media presence, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, etc. Um, you know, we attend a lot of the conferences where music and music technology is relevant. Um, be they the large you know, consumer-focused things like NAB or CES or more bespoke conferences like uh, DEW or Emerge or, or, or kind of similar similar events. Hard to know right now where we'll be, again, given the current uh, global dynamic and travel and, and, um, and health. So I've just been trying to think of the most polite way to say that. But certainly, you know, the, the best and most consistent way to reach out is to email us or, or reach us on social media. Um, we're very good at responding quickly. Cool. Awesome. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to Music Tectonics. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Check out musictectonics.com. Sign up for our newsletter to find out about the Music Tectonics Conference taking place October 27th and 28th, 2020 in Los Angeles. Not only did we go to the New York Music Music Tech Meetup this week. We are doing a couple of meetups in LA, April 13th and 14th. Another reason to sign up to our newsletter and to keep you posted of what we're doing at South by Southwest. We've got meetups there and other meetups we're doing. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.